I don't know if this is the case for you all. Um, it's not a one-to-one ratio of the events in the Ten Commandments with what's going on in the Book of Exodus. If you've only ever seen the movie and never read the Book of Exodus, it's not a one-to-one ratio of things. But I will say this. Uh, a lot of people say that when they think of Moses, they think of Charlton Heston. I don't know if that's the case. But I do know that every time I think of Pharaoh, I definitely think of Yul Brynner. I don't know if that's if I'm the only one who does that. But it's for sure. Was Yul Whenever Brynner, I hear the Pharaoh did, stories. Did, did Yul Brynner play Pharaoh? I... I've forgotten. Yeah. I haven't seen it in so long. This he insight does? is completely lost on you Philistines. <laughs> okay. Until centuries later. Well, no, no, we're talking about Egyptians, not Philistines. Welcome back to another all-natural episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. We've been talking about turning from idols to serve the living God. I've been, uh, mm-hmm. you know, couching this also as how to become holy in however many parts it takes Ken to tell us how to become holy. Uh, I'm Matt Swaim, mm-hmm. along with my colleagues Ken Hensley, former Baptist pastor, Kenny Burchard, a former Pentecostal Foursquare pastor. And if you want to go back and watch previous episodes, go to chnetwork.org for that. Um, if you'd like to join our online community full of people who are walking alongside one another uh, and uh, encouraging one another and praying, go to community.chnetwork.org. And during this series, uh, we have a thematic premium, as it were. Uh, since we're talking about salvation and sanctification, if you go to chnetwork.org compass and make any kind of gift of any amount uh, to support us uh, on a monthly basis, we will send you Marcus Grodi's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? All you got to do in order to get that is enter the code 31, or I'm sorry, OTJ3141 when you make your gift, and we'll make sure you get a copy of Marcus's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? It's uh, great. It's pretty handy and compact. So, yes. gentlemen, you ready to get back into it? I'm I... so ready for Ken to get <laughs> back into it. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm ready. Except I must I must say, Matt, you kind of threw me off today um, because you said hello and welcome back to another episode. You have never included the word back. I, we've done like 125 episodes, and it's always hello and welcome to another. Today you throw in back, and I'm I'm just I I, I have to calm down. I have to, <laughs> I have to get my bearings, and I'm wondering why have you become so prolix. I, well, you know, Ken, why have you become such an old dog that you can't learn new tricks? So, um, got to mix it up a little bit. Uh, hey, you know? you know what? New tricks rhymes with prolix. That was a good move, right that there. That was on purpose. I'm a poet. And oh, it I was. Didn't, it didn't even occur. You know to what? Me. You know, I I guess prolix doesn't really apply when you've only added one word, but it, it just seems. But it seemed to just drag on. Just drag. No, drag I'm just kidding. On. Just drag it. Okay. On. All right. Well, we're doing another episode. We're, I mean, welcome. Uh, hello and welcome back to another episode. We're talking about the doctrine of sanctification in this series, and we've got a long way to go because I keep throwing roadblocks into the beginning, you know, with theological presuppositions and all of it. Anyway, what we're talking about in this series is how we grow as believers in Christ, how we grow as Christians. Now, let me very quickly, without too much prolixity, 
<laughs> without any prolix augmentations of common simple platitudes. Uh, let me quickly summarize where we've come so far. <laughs> One, you and I seek happiness in everything we do. This is a critical point to have in our minds. This is all we do in life. Two, what we're seeking ultimately is God. I mean, if you only knew these two truths, you know, you would basically have what you need. What we're seeking ultimately is God. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God. God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find, that is you, me, every one of us, the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. In short, since we have been created by God in God's image and likeness, created to share in the life and happiness and love of God, the desire that we feel for happiness and that we're pursuing in everything we do is a desire etched into our very souls by the Creator Himself. It's a desire to be filled to overflowing with the love, life, and happiness of God in the Blessed Trinity. Point three, to the extent that we believe this, we will live in obedience to God. To the extent that we believe it. After all, it's quite natural to live in obedience to whatever it is we have chosen to trust for our future happiness. It's just natural. This is the way we live. Point four, the path of trusting God and living in obedience to God is the path of freedom. It's a path that leads to freedom because this is what we were made for. Back to Pascal, who taught us the infinite abyss within can only be filled by an infinite object, that is, by God himself. The path of trusting ultimately in anything other than God is a path that results in unhappiness and, in the end, slavery rather than freedom, um, leading to, finally, point five in summary. What this brings us to understand is that the struggle that we are in as Christians, the struggle of our lives, is a struggle of faith. It's a fight of faith. It's a struggle to believe all of the above, that we've been made for God, that only in God will we find our happiness, that if we follow God and we obey God, this will lead to freedom. If we turn aside to trust in some idol of whatever kind, that it will lead to slavery and unhappiness. Our, our, our struggle is a fight of faith. It's a fight to trust every day. And as we've said many times, faith viewed as a, in, in terms of what the Bible actually teaches and what our faith teaches us, faith is not simply mental assent to a series of propositions. Jesus came, Jesus died, he rose from the dead. If you believe this, you're saved. No, what we're talking about is turning from the idols we've trusted. Thanks for mentioning that, Matt, at the beginning, to put our trust in the living God, to follow the living God, and to find in that the freedom and the happiness that we've been created for. Okay? Now, here's a question for you two right at the beginning. Is there anything that we've talked about, or is there anything that I've said here this morning that you would not have believed when you were Protestant? I mean, I'd be on board with a, a thousand percent of it. As a matter of fact, I've heard spiels like this from people right before they hand somebody the four spiritual laws, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> this is the kind of, this sort of boilerplate uh, evangelistic Christianity. It's, it, you know, if somebody would say, what is the gospel? A lot of people would start out exactly the way that you, that you started out. Uh, but I mean, even when you're talking about that question of, of being 
you know, what we think of when we think of our own freedom versus, you know, slavery to things, you know, I just kept, mm-hmm. as you were talking about this idea of um, being made for freedom in God and the things that we think will make us free, uh, you know, money will give us the freedom that we need to travel as we want and buy what we want and never have to worry about things. And then I think back to Ecclesiastes 5, where it says, whoever loves, loves money never has money enough. Whoever, you know, falls in love with wealth will never be satisfied with their income. And it's true, right? Rich people are miserable. So we know that the freedom doesn't consist in those things. Yeah. Yes. And and I'm 100% with, with Matt there. I think this is, um, this is for sure the way that I would have understood and, and preached um, and, and taught. And I think even in terms of, you know, pastoral counseling or things like that, um, I, I can think, Ken and Matt, many times of talking to people about um, why they couldn't or mm-hmm. we couldn't get free, you know, from certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is the big thing. <laughs> why can't I get free from X, Y, or Z? And you started with it, you know, in this episode, Ken, in in which you you say it's natural to obey the thing that you love that you're most loyalty uh, loyal to and love the most and one of the things that i would often um share in pastoral counseling and even in my own sort of Mm -hmm. counseling my own internal congregation here well the reason one of the reasons you can't get free is that there's something that you still love more than god and that, that may be a shocking word, but it really, I think, is very true and seems to be say, be what you're, what you're saying here right at the outset. And, and, and this is what you were saying in our last episode, too, about when we were talking about idolatry, the nature of sin as idolatry, that you boil it down. It just means you've got something there that you love more than God, or something that you're yes. trusting for your future happiness more than yes. God. Yes. You know, uh, okay. One more thought um, on this, gentlemen, before we move forward. Uh, a couple of days ago, as I was walking up a street here in Fillmore, wonderful Fillmore, California, I was listening to a lecture on St. Thomas Aquinas, and it was on specifically on his view of human freedom. And I found another confirmation from just from another angle of the sorts of things that we've been saying in this series so far. See, St. Thomas spoke of the of of the will not primarily as that aspect of the rational soul which chooses, but primarily as that aspect that desires or that loves. The will, he said, is what moves towards something. It desires, it loves. And he went on to teach that when our wills are pointing in the direction of God, we're desiring God, seeking our happiness in God, and therefore living in obedience to God, we find ourselves experiencing greater and greater freedom, um, which makes sense because of how we're created, what we were made for. We're like a train. I mean, this is my illustration. We're like a train on a track, smoothly running along. Everything's right. We are being what we are made to be. We're on the track. We experience freedom. On the other hand, when our desire, our will, our desire, our love is pointed in another direction, back to what you just said, Kenny, about loving something other than God. When we're seeking our happiness in something other than God, and therefore living in obedience to something other than God, a strange God, our idol, whatnot, we find ourselves experiencing increasing bondage. 
We're like a train, I would say, that has jumped the track. We've left the track where, you know, this train is just running off through the mud and the water and it just gets bogged down and experiences bondage, really. And as a quick illustration, think of the man who takes, who shoots heroin for the first time. He may feel at that moment like he's making a free decision. You know, he could take it, he could leave it, he decides to take it. He's with friends, you know, everyone's doing it kind of thing. So he shoots up. Now, he may feel the second time even that he's more or less choosing to do it. But let the third time come, the fourth time come, the fifth time come, and he will begin to realize very quickly that he has now become a slave. And the point is, it the same basic process takes place with any idol that we choose to replace God in our lives, whether it's money, as, as um, Matt mentioned a moment ago, whether it's some sexual addiction, whether it's entertainment, adventure, experiences, power, um, prestige, whatever we want to think of, and whether we want to think of it as an idol or whether we want to use a, a less you know, str stringent term and call it an unhealthy attachment that we have in our lives or just a bad habit or something like that, the effect over time is the same. It always leads to a lack of freedom, it leads to misery, and it leads to bondage. In the end, I would say our idols drain the life out of us because they turn out to be the broken cisterns that we've read about a couple times in Jeremiah. Those broken cisterns that we dig for ourselves, that we're insistent upon digging for ourselves, that simply do not hold water. And that's why our Lord said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Okay. Mm -hmm. Any final comments before we move forward? I'd I, I just say two, two things there. One is... Um, you know, going back to the biblical story uh, and back to being made in the image of God, you know, God created humanity in his own image out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him uh, and he became a living soul. This is how God brings us to life and makes us capable of being what we are, uh, making us, breathing into us, filling us with his life. And so then the opposite has to be true. You know, the things that aren't God that we yield our lives to, as you say, suck the life out of us. And this reminds me of what Paul is saying to the Christians in Ephesus when he says to them, for instance, in, in five, chapter 518, uh, do not get drunk with wine, which is dissipation. So this idea that, that, it, it, that giving yourself over to a life of debauchery in whatever way, it disintegrates who you are. And so that that seems wow. to be a mega theme in the biblical in the biblical story. Yeah, the one thing I was gonna say it is that um I too have been listening to some stuff on Aquinas. My Lenten listening was uh Peter Kraft's fourteen part lecture series on Aquinas and modern philosophy. And he says, he goes into something very interesting towards the end of it and talks about how like every human behavior is basically motivated by love. Even hatred flows forth from love. And it's usually, there's only one perfect thing that you can love. Everything else is a lesser thing. So, yeah, you know, even everything that you're doing is motivated by your will giving itself over to something that is either a greater good or a lesser good or an evil. Uh, so even your hate 
is usually based out of the fact that something is threatening something that you love, <laughs> right? So yes. all of this flows from, I mean, everything we do yeah. is couched in this kind of, uh, kind of way. See, and when you pitch it like that, Matt, you know, using the word love, then I'm reminded of Aquinas saying that the will is that function of the rational soul that desires or that reaches out in love. And then I'm reminded of Pascal saying all men seek happiness. It's just another way of saying the same thing. And when you say that even hatred <laughs> fits into that, that reminds me of Pascal saying even the man who hangs himself is seeking happiness. Um, you yeah. know, he's seeking something better. So why was yeah, Gollum I, such an awful creature in Lord of the Rings? Because <laughs> oh, things were threatening the loved. precious, right? You know, <laughs> my precious. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good in, yeah. insight, Matt. And and I, I just say this just to to really say amen to it. And that is, um, you know, in John uh, chapter three, Jesus says that this is the verdict. You know, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. And what's so interesting there, you know, everybody says, you know, agape and is this highest form of love. Well, that's the word that's used there in John chapter three. They, they had this agape love, you know, supposed to be this pure and undefiled love. It just means love. They, they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So I, I just, again, amen to that. If there's something is driving us away from God. Even hatred is motivated by, according to Jesus, love for darkness rather than God, rather than light. Okay, time to turn a corner, gentlemen. Do it. And ask the question, how do we leave behind? Okay, let's become practical. How do we begin to leave behind our idols? How do we break the attachments that we formed so that we can attach ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. As I've mentioned previously a couple of times, I want to get us back into the Old Testament here. As we work through this process now with a series of practical steps beginning with this episode today, we're going to use the story of the Exodus as our pattern. Because of the way that the New Testament relates to the Old Testament, because of the way that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament, all right? It turns out that God's deliverance of Old Covenant Israel from bondage in Egypt at the time of the Exodus and the process by which God leads them through the wilderness to the land of promise functions as a perfect type, a, a perfect uh, physical pattern, if you will, of how God delivers you and I from our attachment to idols and to unhealthy things and leads us in the process of sanctification to our true home which is the happiness and life and, and love of God. So we're going to follow the story of Israel as we began last week. Last week, we, we, we began with Israel in bondage, in slavery in Egypt, slaving under their taskmasters. And we spent some time trying to elucidate how this is where God finds us too, um, fallen children of Adam, uh, enslaved to various passions, various gods, various idols in our lives, okay? So here's the practical question. How did deliverance from bondage begin for them? That is for Israel. How did it begin then? They're enslaved. They're there. They're trying to make bricks without straw. How did deliverance begin? And we begin with Exodus 3 verse 7, because this is the account where God first comes to Moses in the burning bush 
And the process begins of deliverance. Here's what we read. The Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their taskmasters, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is as simple as simple can be, but I want you to notice deliverance from bondage begins for the children of Israel when they begin to cry out to God because of their taskmasters. Deliverance begins with prayer. And here is step one for you and I, extremely practical. Step one in the process of being delivered from whatever it is that has bound us and that is keeping us from that total freedom and happiness of God, it begins with prayer. Now, let me immediately say something because this sounds so basic. This sounds so trite. Prayer, everyone knows that. Well, I want to remind you, everyone may know it, but, but, but be reminded of what Jesus said, all right? What our Lord said. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. You listen to that promise. And then I want you to think about the fact that every one of the greatest saints of Christian history, you read their writings, you listen to what they have to say, every one of them insists that prayer is the very key to the spiritual life. So it may be trite, it may be simple, it may be an, a, an amazingly basic place to start, but that's because, according to the saints, this is the very key. And I would say, according to Jesus, ask and you will receive. Now, okay, contain your thoughts for a moment, you guys. Let me say a little bit more, and then I want to hear your response to this whole thing. Okay, as I pondered this whole thing and this story of the Israelites crying out, I think that the reason God waits for us to cry out is this. And again, I think this is basic. Although God is definitely able to deliver us from what whatever it is that we're struggling with, God is able to deliver us. God is able to lead us into freedom. And God wants to. God has the desire to. But before he steps in to do so, God wants us to come to understand. He wants us to feel the reality of the situation that we're in, that maybe we have placed ourselves in, and so he waits. God doesn't just, just jump up and deliver us. God waits for us to come to understand and to really feel that we are indeed in bondage to what has become a harsh taskmaster for us, to really understand and really feel that the idol that we've come to serve is an idol that is worth nothing, that it's nothing but one gigantic lie, and to really want out. And because of that, God basically, God typically allows us to learn the lessons the hard way, to learn the lessons we need to learn. And he doesn't step in until we come to, to the point to where we are crying out, Lord, God in heaven, I cannot break this chain. Please, please do so for me. And of course, this isn't something that is prayer. That isn't something that we're going to do once. 
and and then and then we're done with it. This is going to be something that's going to this is going to be something that should form the very basis of our spiritual life. Our daily life, spiritual life, ought to be a continual saying to God, "I can't do this. You have to do it. I can't break this habit. You have to break it. Please deliver me from bondage." What do you guys think about that? What would you add? I, I have an immediate thought, um, a bit of a personal thought, and then a bit of a church teaching. So uh, during Lent, in back-to-back confessions, uh, a couple weeks apart, two different priests, I heard the same thing after I'd spilled my guts in the confessional from two priests. You know what they both said? And it's weird because I'd never really heard somebody say this this way in the confessional before, and then I heard two priests say it back-to-back. It was, be thankful to God that he allowed you to see the ugliness of your sin so that you could come here. It was weird that, you know, to hear that back to back in in both places. So there's this mysterious thing that the catechism uh, says, and this is in paragraph 2567, that, you know, in some ways God is waiting for us, but even the fact that it occurs to us to finally ask is in some ways a move of grace that he is orchestrating in us. Um, Paragraph 2567, this is one of my favorite paragraphs in the entire catechism. It's in the section on prayer. And I know Kenny's going to read from it as well later on. Um, But it says this, it says, God calls man first. Man may forget his creator or hide far from his face. He may run after idols or accuse the deity of having abandoned him. Yet the living and true God tirelessly calls each person to that mysterious encounter known as prayer. In prayer, the faithful God's initiative of love always comes first. Our own first step is always a response, um, which is a strange and mysterious part of this because God's waiting for us to call it out, but it, call out to him. But even the fact that it occurs to us to call out is in some way God having already kind of moved a little bit in mm-hmm. us. It's a mystery. Yeah, great point. Great yeah. point. Yeah, that's that's so good. We we know that in theological terms, right? As prevenient grace, God's God's grace going before us, moving upon our hearts and then we cooperating with it. But you know, Matt and Ken, as Ken was sharing, I'm, I'm working real hard in these episodes. My, my heart, I want to try to tie everything to the story of scripture. And I was just the met, you know, the meta narrative of scripture. And I just, I was going back as you were sharing, Ken, to the first time that calling on the name of the Lord is mentioned in the Bible. And it's in Genesis chapter four. And it's after the liar comes and deceives the the woman and her husband, and and they are plunged mm-hmm. into sin. And then their children, Cain and Abel, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Abel murders. Uh, sorry, uh, Cain murders his brother Abel. And then you have this narrative of Lamech or Lamech who boasts about being even worse than Cain. And mm-hmm. then you have this birth of this son of Adam and Eve, Seth. It says in Genesis chapter 425, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. And then at the end of the next verse, it says, at that time, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. Then what happens is you have this genealogical path that starts happening toward Noah. You know, humanity just gets worse and worse. But in the midst of this invoking of the name of the Lord after the first sin and all of the effects that happen, 
then God begins again to to find someone, to work with someone to get people out of it. So right. again, it, it shouldn't surprise us that because that really is the first way the story begins to turn after the fall, that it's really always the way that our lives turn after we fall, is, is, as we begin the to prayer. invoke the name of the Lord. Yeah. Okay. In preparation for this, I, I flipped over to the chapter on prayer in St. Jose Maria Escriva's work, The Way. Um, here's just a sample. I just want to pull out a sample of the points that he makes about prayer, and I'll just read them. Here's one. Prayer is the foundation of the spiritual edifice. Here's another. First prayer, then atonement. In the third place, very much in the third place, action. Action is worth nothing without prayer. Here's another point from the way. It is Jesus who speaks. Amen, I say to you, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and, and it shall be opened to you. Pray. And then he asks a question. In what human venture could you have greater guarantees of success? And I, I remember that one striking me, you guys, as I read it for the first time. That, yeah, what human venture would give you greater guarantee of success. Jesus says flat out, he says, ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will. He's promising success to those who pray. Um, just two more. Here's one more. Persevere in prayer. Persevere. Even when your efforts seem barren, prayer is always fruitful. And then another one that is a little bit humorous, although it kind of whacks you upside the head at the same time. Jesus spent the whole night in prayer to God. So St. Luke tells us of our Lord. And you? How often have you persevered like that? Well then. <laughs> you know, like, in other words, well then. Don't come to me complaining about your life. Or, or well then, that explains why you're so weak. That explains why you've made so little progress. When's, I mean, if even Jesus spent the whole night in prayer, to his father. Have you ever done that? Have you ever persevered like that? Okay. Anyway, we could read quotations. This is my only point here. From all of the great saints of Christian history, all the way back to the apostles, all the way back to the Lord himself. And this is where everything must start for us. They're all going to say the same thing. They're all going to say that prayer is the key in the beginning. And I love what you showed, Kenny, about people beginning then to invoke the name of the Lord. They began to call on the name of the Lord, and that's when you see this motion begin that leads us to Noah and the deliverance of the human race. Okay. Oh, one more step, unless you have something you want to throw in at this point. Okay. One more step on this thing about prayer before we move on to step two. We spoke last week about spiritual idolatry um, in terms of addiction. And I, I read from that psychologist, the Christian psychologist, Gerald May, is he talked about, you know, using a lot of the same language we've been using to describe how addictions form in our lives when we set our, our desire for happiness on something other than God and, and we begin to become, you know, um, wed to it and then finally enslaved to it. Well, uh, think about how the process of deliverance begins in Alcoholics Anonymous to talk about psychology and to talk about um, addiction. It, it, again, it's so basic. 
Every alcoholic knows, and it's repeated endlessly, that until a man hits rock bottom, is the phrase, he isn't going to be willing to take the steps necessary to become clean. He has, basically, the way it works is he has to hit rock bottom. And with this in mind, think with me through the first steps of AA. What are the first several steps? Step one is we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. It starts there, admitting. Step two, we came to be aware that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. There you have the children of Israel, I would insist, crying out to God under their taskmasters. And that's where that's how it is for us as well. It's extremely practical because here's the bottom line. If you and I are not crying out to God about whatever it is in our lives that is troublesome for us, whatever bondage we find ourselves in, whatever idols we've come to trust and follow, if we're not crying out to God, then all that means is that you and I have not hit rock bottom (laughs) and we're not ready to take up our cross and to take the steps that God would want us to take to become free. We're just not ready because deliverance begins with prayer. Any final comment on this subject before we move on? Yeah, a couple quick ones. Uh, First of all, if you're looking for a greater connection between the 12 steps and uh, the process of the Christian life um, and and discipleship, go to deepinchrist.com. John Mark Grodi and Brother Rex did a whole series of videos on Deep in Christ, basically unpacking each of the 12 steps in AA and showing kind of like how that can sort of play out in, in the Christian life. Uh, but the other thing about this, too, is that this can actually also happen with people who've been in the church their whole life, like who have been kind of in the soup of Christianity and church stuff and have never really done this prayer thing. Right. And and have never even thought to in their daily life apply this. <laughs> right. Um, I've been going through this awesome book um, that I'd recommend to anybody by uh, Father Augustine Weta. He's a Benedictine. It's called Pray, Think, Act. Uh make better decisions with the church fathers. And one of the coolest things about it is it's got all these old monk stories, uh, a lot of monk stories that have kind of passed down through tradition. And and here's one from the first section on pray. Uh, it's pray, think, act, much like Jose Maria Escrivel was like pray, mm-hmm. atonement, and then action, right? <laughs> right. Um, but this is a story. An old monk was tempted by demons who bothered him day, at night, day and night. One night a demon beat him up and dragged him out of his cell by the hair. The brother cried out, Jesus save me. And immediately the demon ran away. When the old monk began to weep in gratitude, the Lord said to him, why didn't you call sooner? (laughs) Right? Um, And, and, you know, it just kind of goes to that idea of, I think a lot of people want to be delivered. A lot of people want to be, you know, back on the path. But it seems like prayer is the last thing that sometimes occurs to us when we're thinking about, you know, how to grow deeper, how to break free, how to reorient the ship. Yeah, instead of calling out, instead of just calling out, help me, you know, help me. Let's move to step two here then. Okay, having come to clarity, this is step one, having come to clarity that we cannot deliver ourselves, that it's only God who can deliver us, I'm thinking of the 12 steps again, and so that we're ready to hand our lives over, so that we're ready to cry out to God like the Israelites did and say, 
I'm sick of my bondage. Please deliver me. Step two is this. We must step out in an act of faith, doing whatever God tells us to do. Immediately, cooperation and obedience, cooperation, action is involved. We must step out in an act of obedience, doing whatever God tells us to do. Okay, so I'm following the story of Israel. How were the Israelites delivered? Okay, what I'm asking here is this. All right, once they began to cry out to God in their bondage, and once God heard them and he sent Moses to deliver them, when it actually came time for them to walk free from slavery in Egypt, how did it happen? Did um, did Moses, you know, win the lottery and purchase their freedom, pay off, you know, Pharaoh? Did uh, did Moses hand out a bunch of weapons and lead an armed rebellion against Egypt and the and Pharaoh and his armies? Did Moses did Moses set up a screen out in the desert and just play a bunch of wonderful Disney films for the for the children of Israel so that they could come to realize that they actually had the power within them all along and they only needed to learn to trust themselves. Okay, I'm mocking because every single Disney film I've seen in the last 20 years has the same message. Just learn to trust yourself. All you needed to do was learn to trust yourself. Well, none of these things happened. The, uh, none of these are the way that they were delivered. They were delivered in the strangest of ways. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them, that is the lamb, until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. And you all know what happens. They slaughter the lamb, they smear the blood, they roast the lamb, they eat the Passover meal. Basically, the Israelites do what God instructs them to do. They cooperate with his grace, okay? They do what God instructs them to do, and God strikes down the firstborn of Egypt and the children of Israel just walk out. And I won't even mention they walk out with treasures gained from all the people of Egypt that just whose hearts are moved to give them silver and gold and all kinds of stuff. All right, a couple of points real quick. First, notice how faith and the obedience that naturally flows from faith come into play in the Exodus. I just I want to emphasize that. Obedience comes into play. First, there is faith. They do trust God. If they didn't trust God, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't kill the lamb. They wouldn't bother to smear the blood. They wouldn't bother to have the Passover meal. So they have to trust God. But they have to trust God and do what God is telling them to do. From the very beginning, we see cooperation in Scripture. We see faith and obedience working together And even as I say that, I'm thinking of that passage in James 2. What does he say of Abraham? You see that faith was working with his, or obedience was working with his faith. And by his obedience, faith was perfected and he was called the friend of God. Okay, that's one. Number two, notice that what God gave them to do seems to have no causal connection whatsoever, you guys, to their being delivered, which I find a curiosity and something very interesting. Because in other cases, you mentioned Noah, uh, Kenny, a few minutes ago. When God gave Noah a job to do, 
it, it at least made sense, you know, build a boat so that you can get through a flood. When God commanded Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees in order to come to this land that he was going to give him, well, that makes sense. You have to leave Ur in order to get to the land of Canaan. But the Israelites come and say, Lord, deliver us. And God says, okay, I've got a plan. Here it is. Take a lamb and slaughter it. What in the world sense does that make? Okay, I think there's a general lesson here, and you guys can pitch on anytime you want to on this. I think there's a general lesson, a spiritual lesson, a good lesson. And that is, sometimes God gives us things to do that seem to fit perfectly as causally related to the effect that we want to you know, have in our lives, sometimes. But sometimes God gives us things to do that we could just scratch our heads and just think, what in the world does this have to do with me getting to point, you know, uh, you know, from point A to point B, you know, I think here of Naaman the Syrian who has leprosy, and so obviously then he's commanded to go down to the Jordan and dip himself seven times. Who wouldn't tell him to do that to get cleansed of his leprosy? Or I think of the man born blind who Jesus says will go wash in the pool of Siloam. You know, you can imagine the guy saying, "What? Go wash in the? Well, what's that got to do with my blindness?" Uh, you know, and if and I see that in our lives too, and it reminds me of something that Saint Jose Maria, well, something that Mother Teresa said, but Saint Jose Maria said as well, when he said, "If you really want to be a saint, do you really want to be a saint?" He says, "Take the little task that is in front of you, and do it perfectly. Do it with great love, um, and concentrate on what you're doing." And so I, I, I think, okay, so I want to be a saint. So does that mean when I'm out in the backyard weeding? that I just like very carefully weed, that I focus on what I'm doing and I weed for the love of God and I weed with all my heart and I'm going to become a saint doing that? Well, th that's how it works. That's how it works sometimes. You guys are all smiling. What do you got on your mind? Well, I, I, it's, it's true, you know, in, in, on, on one hand, there are these biblical stories that where the point of deliverance seems on the face of it to make perfect sense about, you know, how we get out of this. We're going to, we're going to flood the world and build an ark and sail away to the new world, you know? Um, and then you come to the story, as you said, Ken, of, of the, um, the Passover. And it can seem strange, you know, on the face of it, especially to our ears and eyes. Uh, why is that the way out? I'm not, I'm not so sure it was strange to them, it may have made more sense to them. And, and, um, one of the things that's really helpful here, for instance, is the writer of Hebrews working, working really hard to connect, for instance, to what's written in Leviticus about this blood and the sacrifice. And he says this interesting thing, uh, quoting the Old Testament, that the life is in the blood. Oh, don't eat the blood. The life is in the blood. So why would God, in order to deliver a people who, who cry out to him, um, ask them to spill the blood of an innocent creature and then eat the flesh of that creature? Um, and, and this little phrase, the life is in the blood, is a helpful hint. You, you're, you need to put your whole life into my hands. Pour out your whole life to me. You identify with this innocent creature who's um, not fighting, who's giving up its life without, without you know, it's a lamb led to the slaughter who opens not its mouth. Um, and you, this is a picture 
of returning our lives to God, blood being the yes. way, you know, death being the way that you say, how did I give my whole life? How can I know I gave my whole life? Well, uh, by pouring out my whole life. How's that done? Well, in this case, my blood, all my blood. And then you eat the meat. You know, it's like saying I'm identifying myself to the point of ingesting, you know, um, and, and, yeah. and in that sense, becoming one with this creature who is giving its life willingly. And this is a, a way in that in that sense, it is an invocation. It's a sacramental invocation. It's a way of saying, I'm giving my whole life back to God. My whole, all my people need to give themselves back to me. And this is how they're going to do it through this ritual action. Now, I will say that the, the lamb, you mentioned the lamb, you know, gave itself willingly. The lamb did not give itself willingly, but the lamb that it's pointing forward to does give himself willingly, you know. Right. And I think that's an easier yeah. thing for us to understand with, like, you know, the full retrospective view of, right. of salvation history than it probably would have been in the moment. But there, I guess there was some instruction that did connect with the uh, deliverance, which is the uh, have your shoes on, your staff in your hand, your loins girt. So the girt loins, girt. I think, were part of it. Uh, yeah, I think and, they understood it, that was connected with the deliverance. Yeah, and I would add to what Kenny just said. Obviously, they lived in a world that understood sacrifice, and even on uh, the most minimal level, they understood that if they wanted God to respond and do something for them, that is, deliver them out of Egypt, that offering up a sacrifice to God was a way of saying, "Please do it," you know, "Please yeah. do this for us." So, yeah, yeah, yeah you're making a good point. Um, By the way, I've been uh, I, I I rewatched uh, the Ten Commandments as I do every year uh, during <laughs> Holy Week, and I don't know if this is the case for you all. Um, it's not a one to one ratio of the events in the Ten Commandments with what's going on in the Book of Exodus. If you've only ever seen the movie and never read the Book of Exodus, it's not a one to one ratio of things. But I will say this: uh, a lot of people say that when they think of Moses, they think of Charlton Heston. I don't know if that's the case, but I do know that every time I think of Pharaoh, I definitely think of Yul Brynner. I don't know if that's if I'm the only one who does that, but it's for sure. Was you Whenever a I hear the Pharaoh did, stories. Did you did Yule Brenner play Pharaoh? I I've forgotten. Yeah. I haven't seen it in so long. This he insight does? is completely lost on you Philistines. Who don't <laughs> okay. Until centuries later. Well, no, no, we're talking about Egyptians, not Philistines. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, all this comes together. I think the point, the only point that I was making was that there's no clear causal connection between being delivered from bondage and killing an animal, you know? And yet when you put in all the, the, the understanding that they had of sacrifice and what it means and how it symbolizes the sacrifice of their lives, of offering their entire lives to God as a way of saying, we give ourselves into your hands, we hand ourselves over to you, then yeah, it makes sense in that, in that way. Let me see how this, how this step two applies to, to you and I. Because in order to be delivered from the things that have bound us then, we also have to trust God and, and do whatever God calls us to do. It begins with prayer, with crying out to God, and then we have to trust, trust and obey, for there's no other way. We have to trust God and do what he tells us to do. We have to step out. Action must be involved. Cooperation must be involved. And it's always going to be involved. For us, for instance, and this is taking the typology now of the Passover sacrifice and moving it forward, as you just did, Matt, a, a moment ago. Well, we have to acknowledge that in Jesus' passion, his death, 
in his resurrection, atonement has been made for our sins so that we can be forgiven for what we have done and for the sin in our lives. God, The Lamb of God can take that away. We have to, symbolically speaking, we have to take the blood of the Lamb, and as it were, we have to smear it over the doorposts and frames of our, of our lives. We have to do all that. We have to sit down at the table with our sandals on our feet, as you said, and you use that wonderful word, girt, with our what girt was it again? Our Gird. loins. Gird. Huh? Gird, gird your loins. <laughs> yeah, our loins girt. Girt yeah. is the past yeah, like, tense. Yeah, yeah, like I love that passage that talks about I uh, talks about Elijah girding up his loins and running across the desert. Anyway, yeah, we have to do that in the sense that we have to acknowledge Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. In that sense, smear the blood above the doorposts of our lives. We have to sit down with our sandals on our feet, with our lo- with our loins girt. We have to eat the lamb, which we're going to come back to later when we talk about the Eucharist. We have to be ready to go. That's the thing. We have to be ready to go. We can't just cry out to God in our ta- you know, uh, because of the weight of uh, bondage that we're living under, the chains, and yet not be ready to go, not be willing to step out and do what God gives us to do. Um, but even as we do that, then we have to understand that it's God who, by his grace, does the deliverance. We trust God. That's the pattern. We trust God. We step out in faith. We do what God calls us to do. We cooperate with God's grace in our lives, that prevenient grace that you mentioned, Kenny. We do what God requires, understanding that the powerful inward transformation of who we actually are is something that only God can do, mm-hmm. molding us into the image of Christ. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says, verse 18, where Paul says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are changed into his glory from one degree of glory to another, which is the work of the Spirit. I'm paraphrasing badly, but it's the Spirit that does it. And so two more passages just quickly. What did Paul say after laboring with all of his might to bring the gospel to the entire Roman world of the time? This is what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. He said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And one more verse from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is, finish it up, Kenny, for it is... It is God who is at work in you. (laughs) Yeah, both to will and to do. To will and to do that which is good, or the good. His good pleasure. Mm Mm-hmm. Let me go ahead and conclude, and if you have any final statements, you can tag it on then. So in conclusion, what we've looked at today, you guys, is just step one and two. Step one in the process of being delivered from bondage to idols is prayer. It's to pray. Mm -hmm. Let me put it like this. If you are not crying out to God like the Israelites were crying out to God, then you do not yet feel yourself to be in bondage, and you do not really want out that badly. Then I don't Mm -hmm. mean you, you. I mean you, me. That's where we're at if we're not crying out. Step two, then, is to obey, is to step out in faith and do whatever it is God gives us to do. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus, we used to sing, but to trust and obey. And next week, we're going to move on from here. Um, Old Testament Israel cried out to God, prayer. Old Testament Israel did what God told them to do, 
they uh, celebrated the Passover and they walked out of Egypt. And so uh, what's step number three? What came next in the story? What comes next in the story? That's what we're going to pick up on when we get together next week. Any final thoughts, gentlemen, on prayer or on the obedience of faith? I have a, I have a, a, a thought, you know, just to kind of bring it back around to what this podcast's YouTube show is on the journey, what on the journey is. So um, if this is the first time you've been watching, uh, Ken Hensley was a Baptist pastor. Kenny Burchard was a Foursquare pastor. I came from the Wesleyan tradition. You know, mm -hmm. I played in bands and worked in Christian bookstores. And we all ended up in the Catholic Church. And the whole purpose of the Coming Home Network, and really the purpose of the show specifically, is to help people who come from other faith backgrounds or no faith backgrounds at all, you know, understand a little bit about what the Catholic Church is, especially mm -hmm. if they're interested in it. And we work with people from all over the spectrum who are making that journey. And it can be a really easy thing to fall into. I know it was something that I struggled with along the way to think when you're on that path of discovery of the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith becomes something that used to be scary and then became curious and then became fascinating and then you felt like you had to become a part of. You start to have thoughts like, I should beef up my library. Um, I need to buy more books. I need to do more historical research because I have no knowledge of church history. I need to listen to a whole bunch of podcasts, perhaps previous episodes of On the Journey. Um, I need to become theologically formed and reorient my previous theology towards Catholic theology. Uh, I need to, now that I'm discovering these moral teachings that are present in Catholicism that I didn't used to follow in my previous life, I need to line myself up morally with the moral teachings of the Catholic Church. And those are all good things. But you can be so caught up in those things that you forget, like, this most basic elemental part of what you're supposed to be doing, which is, are you in prayer about it? And, you know, we see it sometimes. People come in so jazzed about the things that they're <laughs> learning, right? They come in hot, and they come in mm -hmm. really excited about the knowledge, and it can just be so easy to forget, like, this most basic aspect of what it means to be a Christian, which is to be connected to God in prayer. And I'm only saying that as a cautionary tale. It's like a guy warning you about bear traps because he mm -hmm. stepped in a bear trap before. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that that this issue of prayer applies everywhere. Thanks for that. Yeah, and you know, permit me a little patience, guys, because I have two two final thoughts here. One from the confessional, which you know Matt shared an illustration or a you know an anecdote from his life, and then one final thought from the catechism. So first on the confessional, um, there is this kind of distorted. Um, I don't know what I would call it, a meme that goes around that says, well, you go into a Catholic confessional and the priest, after you know absolving you, says, well, go out in the church now and say, you know, two Our Fathers and three Hail Marys or three Our Fathers and two Hail Marys or some combination, <laughs> you know, of those things. And it becomes kind of a joke. I used to make fun of that uh, penance, that prayer penance, when I wasn't a Catholic, oh, these priests, how do they tell you? They tell you after you've confessed these horrible sins. You know, just go say three Our Fathers and two Hail Marys and everything's fine again. This is sort of the, the, the meme, right? The, the, and it really is a distortion. And a Catholic priest helped me with this, Ken and Matt. And I think that it 
connects so deeply to what you've shared in this episode, Ken, that prayer is the way out of sin. And the the opposite is also true. And that is prayerlessness is the way in to sin. And so to me, like I've talked to my son and my wife about it, I'm always completely happy, completely glad, completely fine with it when a priest says to me after absolution, go and say three Our Fathers and two Hail Marys or whatever. And that's because in one of my confessions, a Catholic priest said, the reason you have fallen into the sin is that you have stopped praying. You have stopped calling on your father. You have stopped invoking the communion of saints to help you and to and to be with you. And so you have isolated yourself from God and from his church and from the heavenly church as well. So it makes perfect sense to me that when I have confessed my sin, that I've fallen into because of prayerlessness, that the way out of that sin and to straighten my life out again is to go back out into the church and to dare to call God Father again and to do it three times, you know, just like Peter did when he said, Lord, you know, I love you. Lord, you know, I love you. Lord, you know, I love you. Like, it's okay to say that, you know, to do it three. And then to pray the 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 uh, the Hail Mary uh, prayer, because there again, I'm connecting myself back in to that communion of saints and most especially embodied, you know, in, in the Blessed Mother that I have disconnected myself from to the point where I let myself fall into sin. And so prayerlessness is the way into sin. Prayer is the way out. And so for any Catholic who's watching, you should be encouraged when your priest tells you, go pray. <laughs> why? Because you weren't praying. That's why you fell. Now go pray and, 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 and keep good. praying. So that's that. The second thing is, is and to put a, a, a point on it, is a paragraph from the Catechism. And this is paragraph 2744. This somewhat shocking paragraph from the Catechism on prayer. Prayer it says, is a vital necessity. Proof from the contrary is no less convincing. If we do not allow the Spirit to lead us, we fall back into slavery of sin. Just what you've been talking about, Ken. How can the Holy Spirit be our life if our heart is far from him? And then it ends in this section with a quote from St. Alphonsus Liguori, which says this, Nothing is equal to prayer, for what is impossible, it makes possible. What is difficult, easy, for it is impossible, utterly impossible for the man who prays eagerly and invokes God ceaselessly ever to sin. Then this final sentence, those who pray are certainly saved. Those who do not pray are certainly damned. Wow. And the first time I read that, it was shocking, but it actually makes sense that to the degree to which we disconnect ourselves from God, most especially in prayer, we remain on that trajectory away from God. And the degree to which we reconnect with God through prayer and stay there, we remain on that trajectory toward God. And the, and the catechism and the witness of scripture and the saints, they all say the same thing. Yeah, there's Whoa. a great quote out there. Uh, I can't remember who said it, and 
but the idea that you can't stay in sin and keep praying the rosary, either you're going to keep sinning and stop praying the rosary, or you're going to keep praying the rosary and stop sinning. <laughs> like one of those two <laughs> things is going to happen. Yeah, and w- when you mentioned when you mentioned the confessional, Kenny, and you t- told that little story about the confessional, it reminded me of this, and this is my final word. In the confessional, you have to come with a firm purpose of amendment in order for it to be real, right? Yes, yes. Which fits in with this lesson because not only do I need to cry out to God to deliver me, but I need to be willing then to do what God tells me to do. There has to be a firm purpose to change. Or I'm not even I'm not even to the first step of AA. You right. know, I'm not even sitting in the meeting and willing to stand up and say anything if I'm not willing to pray and if I'm not willing to do then, to step out and do. And of course, we will fail in our doing and we'll have to be forgiven for that as well. But you have to have a firm purpose to do that. Mm-hmm. You cannot get out of slavery any other way. Anyway, I'm reminded of that. And I think we will sign off with that today. Yeah, plenty of examples of what happened when Israel left Egypt, but Egypt hadn't quite left Israel, <laughs> right? In the desert of you know, what happens when that firm purpose of amendment isn't so firm. But we want to thank you for watching this episode all the way through of On the Journey. Um, to go back and find previous episodes in this series or the other series uh, that we've done on faith alone, on Sola Scriptura, on baptism, and a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, you can go to chnetwork.org. We have an online community where all three of us hang out as lo- along with a whole bunch of other wonderful people in the Coming Home Network. Some of them are uh, converts to Catholicism. Some of them are inquirers on the way. It's a great space to have conversations. That's community.chnetwork.org. And all this is made possible because generous people want you to be able to have access to these resources for free. If you want to join them, we have a special thing we're doing right now where if you go to chnetwork.org compass and enter the code OTJ3141, we'll send you a copy of Marcus Crodi's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved, which deals with topics very closely intertwined with this series. So again, go to chnetwork.org compass, enter the code OTJ3141, we'll send you a book uh, from Marcus, who founded this whole thing. So that's pretty cool. I'm Matt Swaim, Kenny Burchard, Ken Hensley. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week. So great. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll see you guys. See ya.